The scripture reading today is from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. You can find it printed on page 10 of your worship folder. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. God, I pray that you would meet us now through this ancient story, this story of transformation, of powerful, radical transformation, and that as we hear this and learn more about you and how you impact people's lives and how everything can change in an instant, that you would meet us in the transformations that need to happen in our life right now with whatever we're facing today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Good morning, City Church. Um, I'm really happy to be able to talk about St. Paul, the apostle, this morning. But here we find him as Saul of Tarsus. Same guy, Saul, Paul. Uh, I'll probably refer to him by both names throughout the sermon. Um, but this is his major transformative experience. This is the original Damascus Road experience. 
You might have heard that phrase kicked around sometimes, something being a Damascus Road experience. This is the one. This is where it all started. And this is where Paul goes from being public enemy number one of the early church to being the Apostle Paul, who goes on to write much of the New Testament that we use today. It goes on to really impact world thought and philosophy on a level that very few people, very few, have impacted. But this is where it all happens. This is where it all begins, through a transformative experience. And it reminded me of a quote of D.H. Lawrence where he says, um, the world doesn't fear new ideas as much as it fears new experiences. The world doesn't fear new ideas, the world fears new experiences because experiences can overthrow a thousand ideas all at once. Ideas are important, ideas have power, but ideas can be counteracted by other ideas. They can be suppressed by really great PR machines or governments or all that, but an experience, once you've experienced something transformative, all your previous ideas might go out the window and nothing can stop you to take that message forward. This is that moment for Paul. His transformative experience that erases and resets all the years and the training and the study and this intense, intense, fanatical rage that he had in that moment. Because when this scene starts, this guy, Paul, Saul, is basically a religious terrorist. I mean, he's a fanatic. He goes to the chief priest in Jerusalem and asks for essentially a hunting license for Christians, except they're not even called Christians yet, because this thing, you notice the, in the text, the way, the reference to the way, it's just a small sect of Judaism that is learning and discovering who this Jesus is. But they are threatening everything Paul believes in and stands for. And Paul, um, it's not like everybody in the Jewish establishment believed that, the Jewish religious leaders. There were some very moderate voices in what they called the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish courts of the day, the temple courts. There were people saying things like, look, this Jesus way, this new thing that's starting, uh, we don't need to freak out over it. Let's, um, let's give it some time. Let's see if God's in it. Because if God's in it, it'll flourish and it'll turn into something that we all can see is good. Or if it's not from God, it'll just, it'll fade away. So let's, let's uh, give it some time. That was one very powerful, moderate type of voice that you would have heard. But that's not Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus is on a rampage. The chapter before, he supervised the stoning of who we now call the martyr Stephen. He used his authority as the Pharisee in the room or in the setting kind of gave tacit authority, watched everybody's clothes and belongings, while Stephen, a leader in the early Jerusalem church, was stoned. And I just happened to stumble upon some info about first century stonings, um, and I already knew that they were incredibly violent, and I'm not going to go into the details, but they were designed to be as tortuous and psychologically tortuous as well, beyond anything I would have imagined. And Saul, lending his authority, just the chapter before, letting this happen, to Stephen, a leader in Jerusalem. So what on earth is fueling this rage? Because he's, he's basically like ISIS. 
And scholars look at it, and they can see different things. I mean, some, some basic stuff. Um, he was very ambitious. He's trying to prove himself. He talks about that later in his life. Um, he was afraid that this thing could get out of control and his religious system could come crashing down. I think, he, you know, he had an extra heightened level of fear around that. But there's something uh, way more interesting going on with him, too, that some scholars look into, and I, I tend to see it this way, too. Um, and you can see it if you start looking at Paul's writings later on when he's referring back to that time in his life that he was actually, I believe, suppressing his own doubts. Carl Jung says, um, fanaticism is always a compensation for hidden doubt. Fanaticism is always a compensation for hidden doubt. What we know about Paul is that he did have two relatives, close relatives, that were already believers in the new Jesus way before his conversion. And then we know through other writings that he was really beginning to question whether this way of following God through the temple system and the, the rules and the law, whether, you know, through your own merit, whether it could work. And he was beginning to crack and fall apart. And what sometimes happens is when you're beginning to doubt, you just lean in harder into your belief for a while to see if you can just hold on to it. And it reminded me of a time in my life where I was a little bit like this Apostle Paul. Not as violent, I didn't kill anybody, anything like that. But, um, but now and then I'll refer to, um, that I, I was a lawyer back, and I'm referring to it less and less because now it's like getting like way in the past. But um, I was also raised, kind of like Paul, um, very traditionalist, very conservative, um, traditional family values and all that. So I, I go to law school, and near the end of law school, I get recruited by a um, kind of a pro-family values public policy law firm to travel around the country and like file lawsuits to stop anything from changing in, in public policy from like the way it was in the, the 80s, okay? And so this is like late 90s or early, early 2000s. And looking back, what I can see is um, I was already doubting a lot of my inherited beliefs. Because I was living in Chicago and I was exposed to a much more diverse group of people and I was questioning the whole thing. Things were just not adding up the way they used to as a child or a younger adult. But I also found for a short time that if I just jumped into this work and just pressed down as hard as possible, I could sort of bring some coherence back into that old system, that old way of thinking. And it worked, it worked for a little while, not very long, because God, in God's wisdom, uh, had a different idea in mind by these organizations putting me on planes to go to different cities and file lawsuits to try to stop bad things from happening. What happened instead was I'd go to these cases and so, so often I would keep finding the same opposing counsel across the aisle from me, like over and over again, over, over a year. And, you know, they were from places like ACLU and Lambda Legal Defense and Human Rights Campaign. And the thing that surprised me was how well we got along. The thing that surprised me is that we started to become friends. The thing that really surprised me is that they welcomed me. So my organization is suing something that they care against something they care about, and they were so gracious to me personally, the Christian in the courtroom. And that experience 
began, finished off the undoing of realizing it is time to go back and relook at all these things again. And there's a lot of what drove me and led me into seminary, because for seminary for me, it was really a time of digging back in, learning it all over again. Reorientation, kind of like repentance in a deep, rich way. And it changed my life from that point on. Fanaticism is a compensation for hidden doubt. But what's, what's it for you right now in your life? What's the thing causing anxiety? The thing that's making you feel like your world might be coming undone? The thing that's keeping you up at night? Where are you saying things to yourself like, if only I could take control of this one person, or if only I could take control of this one situation, everything would be okay. Or maybe that kind of energy, which can actually be like violent energy at times, maybe you're actually directing it on yourself. Feeling like you have to be the perfect employee, the perfect business leader, the perfect spouse, the perfect parent, the perfect child, the perfect friend. And if you let up for one second, the whole world, world's going to come crashing down. That energy to control, to contain, can just as easily be projected outward as in down on yourself. And it can feel like your world is going to fall apart if you don't do it. But the thing is that God is actually, and in this story, what we see, he's, God's in the business of letting our worlds fall apart. And that's what happens to Paul here. Verse 3. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. It's an amazing, mystical encounter. Flashes of light. Paul falls to the ground. You know, in most of the artwork that portrays this moment, he falls off of a horse, but there's not actually a horse in the story. Um, which also forgot to mention the rage he must feel to walk 150 miles to Damascus to go round up some Christians and have to bring them back 150 miles on foot to Jerusalem. But imagine Paul in that moment. He falls to the ground. He's blinded. He asks who this person is. He realizes it's Jesus. And then the statement that Paul is persecuting Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? I'm picturing Paul in that moment in complete mental cognitive breakdown. He's blinded. Confronted by this godlike figure, instantly questioning how wrong he had gotten everything, how many mistakes he's already made. And then this confusing thing of he, this thing is saying, I'm persecuting Jesus. What does that mean? Because I've been chasing these followers of Jesus, but why is he saying he's, I'm persecuting him? I don't know him. 
But in that statement, why are you persecuting me? In that statement, there's a seed, there's a little kernel of what grows into all of Paul's theology from that day on. But this is the moment of intense, intense disorientation. Darkness, three days, just complete darkness. He's in shock. He's so much in shock that he can't eat or drink. Total breakdown of his worldview, complete darkness. I mean, it probably felt for much of those three days that this thing was gonna go on forever, that this was just life now. I don't know why God tends to do things this way. But the pattern in the Bible, and not just the Bible, the pattern in many of the world's great stories, is that there's always this this movement from an epiphany to a moment of enlightenment and seeing something new that needs to happen that often then goes into this dark and challenging time that lasts for a while until you can find a new way forward. These moments of darkness in that process of transformation are real. It reminded me of that um, famous opening line to um, Dante's Inferno, where he says something like, midway through the journey of our life, I awoke, just like suddenly awoke in a dark, dark wood, and the true path had been wholly lost just found himself there, lost. And that's what it feels like in those moments. Theologians usually call that the dark night of the soul. It serves a purpose. It's it's time of purging, a time of transformation, a time of changing. But it can feel dark and can feel like death. Rowan Williams, talking about those moments, um, and Rowan Williams is, I will go on record saying he's my absolute favorite living theologian. Um, named my second-born child after him, named Rowan. Um, but he says, uh, the dark night, this is fascinating, the dark night is God's attack on religion. The dark night of the soul is God's attack on religion. Now, he's not saying it's God's attack on faith or on growth or on spirituality. What Rowan's saying is, he actually goes on to say something like this, that if you want to know the true love of God, if you want to know the true, inexhaustible, unspeakable love of God, all your religious systems, your, the way you use your religion for your morality code, for your belonging system, for your tribal identity, all those kinds of things, which is a lot of what religion, organized religion does, all that has to go. And this is the former Archbishop of Canterbury. He is highly orthodox. Okay, so there's nothing crazy going on here. He's identifying the same thing that's happening here to Paul, that the old system, the way you thought the world was held together. And for Paul, it was the temple system, it was the law, the particular view of the scriptures and the way that this chosen people of God had to perform perfectly. All of that has to go to know the inexhaustible love of God. So those three days of darkness, Jesus working in Paul's heart, I believe, saying, Paul, let it all go. Let it all go. Let me rebuild your world, not around those things you've been holding on to, but on myself. Let me teach you what it begin, let me begin to teach you what it means to be 
in Christ. What it means to be in Christ. Because when I said to you on that Damascus road, you're persecuting me, it's because my followers and I are so close that their suffering and my suffering are shared. That they are in me, I am in them. And you need to begin to rebuild your world on that idea. And that's what Paul begins to do. And I believe in that moment, wrestling with what had just happened, those three days of darkness, he's trying to figure out what happened, what to do next, that the very earliest formulation of what it means to be in Christ starts to come out of that moment. And he goes on to write about that over and over again. The phrase in Christ is mentioned by Paul, Paul's writings, over 160 times in, in just the New Testament. And many theologians say it's not even like an idea or a doctrine of Paul, it's actually the summary of Paul's entire life work to explore what it means to be in Christ. And it's not just people. By later on in Paul's, the development of his work, Colossians, he talks about the whole universe. Everything, every material thing, everything that exists being held together in the risen Jesus Christ. That's a pretty crazy, awesome idea. But it doesn't get Paul or Saul out of this moment, out of the darkness. Because he still has to deal with himself. He's killed. He's thrown countless people in prison. He's probably broken up families. And maybe this Jesus movement is real, maybe it's good, but how on earth is he supposed to find a place in it? How on earth can he repair what's gone wrong or make up for it? How can he ever be accepted or trusted? He might be learning a lot in this powerful, transformative experience, but how on earth is his life not now over given what he's done and given the darkness that he's in now? He was going to need something else. He's going to need another experience to take the next step. Picking up in verse 10, it says, Now there was a disciple in Damascus called Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up, go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in to lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias says, Uh-uh, <laughs> no way. I know what this guy's done. My friends all know what this guy's done. And sometimes I, I think it's funny that people in the Bible like talk back to God. Because um, I just don't know if it really would happen that way. If God, the you know, almighty God of the universe shows up in your house and says, go do something. I mean, you're going to be like, oh, just one data point you're missing. Um, I'm not sure you're aware of. Um, but the thing is that Ananias, first of all, he's 100% correct. Second, um, he's afraid for his life, and I think even if God told you to go do something that's going to likely lead to your death, you're going to push back a little. It's a fear, it's a survival response. But Jesus says to him, look, I've chosen this man. I've chosen this man, 
And then in verse 16 says something so interesting. I myself will show him how much he must suffer. I myself will show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Really interesting words. And it's not payback. It's not Jesus saying, look, Paul's going to get it now. Don't worry. He'll pay for all this. What Jesus is saying, and if we had more time, we could really get into this because it's really interesting. What Jesus is just saying is, Saul, Paul, is going to suffer just like you, Ananias, and the community of Jesus followers are always suffering and always on the run and always hiding. And Paul does go on to suffer greatly in his career. But it was really the mark of being part of the Jesus community, and it still is. We, we in our setting here, need to learn and explore more of what that means because we're so protected. But from the very beginning, being a Jesus follower included a lot of suffering. And so just a real simplification of what's going on in that scene, Jesus is saying to Ananias, Paul is now part of this suffering family of Jesus. He's your brother now. So you can go to him. And it was enough to get Ananias to go. And he goes straight to that house and he goes straight in and puts his hand on Paul and calls him brother. Also something I'm not sure I, I could do. I think I'd hedge a lot and I think I'd go and like knock on the door and run away and then try to do a negotiation from a distance to make sure this deal goes down exactly the way Jesus said it was going to go down before I go in and get too close to this violent Saul of Tarsus. But Ananias goes right in, calls him brother. And if you think about that from Paul's perspective and Paul's moment, his existential experience in that moment, wondering can he ever find a way to be included in this new thing, ever find a way to be forgiven, and he feels that hand on him, and he hears his name, and he is called brother. It's only then that his sight comes back. And if you've ever in your life been in a really dark time where you couldn't see the way forward and you were beginning to doubt and wonder if your life was over or the good things in your life was over, and you've ever, if you've even in a small way, experienced what it is to have somebody else who knows you, somebody else who has the trust and authority and trust in your life to be able to speak directly to you, and they say to you, I can see you, I see your gifts, I see how you're knit together, I see how God's been part of your life in the past, I see your pain, and I'm telling you, you will be used again. I'm telling you, there is a future. I'm telling you, your life is not over. That you will love again, you will find joy again. If you've ever experienced that ability to see yourself through somebody else's eyes, to be called brother when you thought your life was over, you, you know how powerful that is. It's so much more powerful than reading a Bible verse and trying to convince yourself that it's true. So if you're in a dark time right now, please know that you cannot actually get through it on your own. And in a church like this, my hope would be nobody would ever feel like they need to. There's pastors and a, actually a professional counseling center 
and church members all wanting to speak into each other's lives, blessing and hope. But also, that, that is who we need to be. As a church, we need to be a church of Ananias. We need to believe that we have the power to actually speak words of healing to one another. To believe that we can cross boundaries and go to our enemy or go to somebody who's just so different than us that we didn't think it was possible to be in relationship. To believe that because we begin to believe that the world isn't held together by our religion. It's not held together by our past. It's not held together by our merit or our best efforts. It's held together by Jesus Christ holding you and your enemy, holding you and your current life challenge, holding all of that in his love. Meaning you don't have to generate the love. You just have to rest in it. In closing, um, I was thinking about Paul's experience or how I imagine it. And it reminded me of a of a poem, this idea to go from believing the world is one way to seeing that, no, everything, ha- everything is held together in Christ. It reminded me of this poem by Malcolm Gweet called Everything is Held Together, or Everything Holds Together. I think it's going to go up on the... Everything holds together, everything. From stars that pierce the dark like living sparks to secret seeds that open every spring, from spanning galaxies to spinning quarks, everything holds together and coheres, unfolding from the center whence it came. And now that hidden heart of things appears, the firstborn of creation takes a name. And shall I see the one through whom I am? Shall I behold the one for whom I made? The light and light, the flame within the flame, icon to Theu, image of my God. He comes, a little child, to bless my sight, that I might come to him for life and light. Let's pray. God, thank you for transformation. Thank you for the dark nights that teach us. Give us eyes to see and give us hearts that can actually connect with how this world is held together by you and in your love. And let that be the deep security that carries us forward this week. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.